Welcome to Pivot to First. Hi, I'm Mike Seidel. I'm the CTO at Pivot CX. Every day I get to work with some of the brightest minds in the industry with one goal, turning hiring and people strategy into a competitive advantage. Hi, I'm Mike Seidel, Chief Technical Officer here at Pivot CX, and today I'm joined by Ira Wolf. He is uh, the world's chief Googleization officer, a work futurist, best-selling author, and recently inducted Hall of Fame speaker for HR Southwest. He's also the uh, author of what I hear is the best chapter in a new book that's coming out, Create, a great, create great Culture in a Remote World. Ira, welcome. Hey, thanks, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. Good to see you. I'm glad, I'm glad you're here. What We've been uh, on together, I think we did something about a year ago. Really glad to have you here on our podcast. Can't wait to, to kind of get into things here. So, um, you know, one thing that's always interesting about you is uh, you didn't start off in the people business. You started off um, actually drilling and billing. Well, I think that's really people business because we're literally in their face. Uh, I don't know if there's a much more, if there's a business that, that gets a lot more intimate when people are awake than maybe, uh, you know, some, some type of personal relationships. Uh, but no, I started my career as a dentist, and for anybody who catches my my TED Talk, uh, which was Make Change Work For You, uh, I, I start out that way. Uh, one is I've always been dancing with change, and I loved everything about dentistry but dentistry. <laughs> well, you've had quite a journey. I mean, starting off in, in dentistry and then ending up, uh, you know, in the people business, it's it's a pretty amazing journey. So tell us a little bit about that journey. What? How did you move from being a dentist into what you're doing today? Yeah, this, the story is always shocking. And, and even with your, your question, everybody's always shocked that I moved from dentistry to, to business or HR consulting or, or people business. Uh, and the reality is, is I grew my dental practice. I started from scratch uh, at another time in history when interest rates were, were crazy, ridiculously high. I actually fixed my, my, I fixed my rate, my opening business rate, borrowed $100,000 at 14%. Um, which, you know, is like putting it on a credit card and, and it, only because the interest rates were, were they were fluctuating and prime ended up, uh, about 17 and a half percent. Uh, if I had waited my opening interest rate would have been about 21%. So, you know, we, we lived through these crazy times, but ultimately I started my business. Um, I, I always ran it as a business, uh, and, you know, one of the part, important parts was you treat your customers right, right. And you treat your employees, right. So I, I have employees that have not been on my payroll for 30, between 30 and 40 years, but I still, they're still friends of mine on Facebook. They send me holiday cards, birthday cards, they're greeting, um, they're still in touch with me. And, you know, so part of it is some of the stories of how did you, you know, how did you make that move? Well, I didn't make a move because I had a degree and I can hang a shingle out there and I can drill and bill. Uh, it was, I love marketing. I'm a content marketer. Anybody who follows me sees all the stuff that I put out. Uh, and I, you know, I, I enjoyed, I had a newsletter like two weeks into or two months into the business. Uh, and so I was writing and, and they said, oh, you can do these stock things and just send them out to people to keep in touch. And I wrote the first and back page. So it was content management, uh, content creation, probably more than management. <laughs> I'm not sure if I, I still understand management. I just create. Uh, it is that you, you, you hire the right people and you deliver great customer service. 
And ultimately, it wasn't about let me build a team culture or let me have a, a good building or or let me know, you know, knowledge is important. Obviously, I, I had to have the technical skills to be able to do that. But it was never what drove me. It was always the entrepreneur aspect, the innovation aspect. Uh, but ultimately, you know, why do people come? Why do they still why? They were easy skills to transfer when I moved from this business, from dentistry to this business. It was exactly the same business model. Hire the right people, treat people right. You know, that's a that's kind of a universal formula for, for success. Hiring great people, treat them right. Um, that's been how we built what we built at Pivot. And it's it's something in the six companies I built. It's been a kind of a cornerstone strategy to, you know, how do we how do we do this? Just take care of the people that you have. Make sure they're they're happy. Make sure that that they like their jobs. Make sure um, that they're engaged in, in what they're doing. And, and great things seem to happen. Um, it's hard. It's easy to say it. It's really hard to do it. Right. And and you have to have. There are technical skills that you need. And you know, my skill was I, I didn't like the drilling and the filling because it was it was repetitive. Um, I worked with an oral surgeon, so I did like 800 of these major jaw surgeries as an as an assistant. Uh, so my 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 the, the services that I delivered were quite diverse, um, but the part that I really loved doing it was problem solving. And and I learned. I, I joke and I say I used to get paid a, a lot of money for this because insurance covered it. But it was differential diagnosis. It was a problem that nobody else can solve. It was a pain in a tooth that people tapped on. They put ice on. They put heat on. Uh, they did all these things, but they were still pain. And so people right. used to refer to me. Uh, refer people to me because I was good at that differential diagnosis. I was, uh, you know, in other words, connect, you know, see things that other people don't see, be able to connect the dots, be able to see the white space. You know, in, in, in healthcare, they talk of differential diagnosis in, in business. You know, it's about seeing the white space, about seeing opportunity, about connecting the dots, thinking outside the box, all those, you know, whatever metaphor or anal analogy you want to use. Um, but I enjoyed doing that and I was good at that. So those were easy skills to transfer. It wasn't about just solving teeth problems or jaw problems or health problems. Uh, it was very easy to relate. So I made the transition. It's like, I didn't think there was anything of it. It's like, I just, I quit my job. I, I, I was one of the, by the way, we'll relate this to what's going on now, quiet quitting. I quiet quit before quiet quitting was in vogue. Uh, but in, in about 1992, uh, or even earlier than that, I started to, to really cut back on my hours and play a lot of golf was a diversion. Uh, and, uh, and I found I was actually more productive when I was, you know, instead of working 40 hours, I was working 30 hours. I was more productive, more effective, and I was accomplishing a lot more, but I, I still didn't enjoy it. So I got back to 27 hours and 24 hours and 20 hours and adding more rounds of golf each week. And I realized I really didn't like my life. I didn't like my lifestyle, but in today's terms, that's quiet quitting. Yeah, it I, is. I, I wasn't putting the time in. I was still, fortunately, I was making money, but I, I was quite quitting on myself and on on my staff and on on the, the, the patients. Obviously, if I'm not there, you, you can't get appointments and things. Fortunately, I had a successful uh, uh, bit, you know practice, brought in an associate in, so they were able to take over right. it. Uh, but I, I essentially quiet quit um, almost 30 years ago. <laughs> Yeah, I, I could tell you a story about about where I, I quite quit one company and went to work for the other one at the same time. Um, but 
Not, not, yeah, it's but, tough to uh, do it. Now you hear about how horrible that is. And um, people have been doing it for years. They, it's been going on for a long time, and I've always felt like quiet quitting and, and quiet quitting and anything that smells like that honestly kind of turns into a bit of a management problem because the work output from whoever is quiet quitting, you don't even notice the work output is gone. Well, that goes into a whole other story. You know, I just read an article the other day, and I think it's one of the dumbest ideas I've heard, but that, that seems to be the, the cycle, is that they're going to bring back annual performance reviews. I think the uh, the CEO of Google announced that, you know, so it made, the, it made Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg and, you know, all of them, that, hey, annual reviews are coming back because we need to, we need, need people need to be more productive. And then the old uh, uh, Jack Welsh, you know, thing is that we're, we're and that was actually their story. It's that we need to identify the bottom 10% performers and we just can't afford to keep them anymore. I mean, all this stuff just cycles around, cycles around. Uh, the annual performance was just the dumbest idea I've ever heard of. Do we need performance reviews? Absolutely. Uh, doing it once a year tied to compensation or as a way to get rid of people um, is just, I mean, we can go on and on, but well, in, this, in this labor market, I think I think what we're dealing with is people will get rid of themselves before you get a chance to get to that. In a lot of oh, cases, yeah. back to quiet quitting. Um, it seems that seems so disconnected from the reality that almost all of us in business are facing right now. Um, so you've been in in the you've been looking at work and the future of work for a long time, and you know if you look at what's uh, going on out there, you know before you and I talked about doing this podcast, you mentioned. Um, what you've been seeing in the labor market since the 1990s. And it's really interesting how oblivious corporate America is to exactly what's happening. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about what you see uh, today's labor market looking like and, and what the big challenges are for CEOs out there. Yeah, well, I, I, we, we can spend a, a lot of time on that. But uh, about 25 years ago, uh, you know, we, we were in a similar market. Uh, there were a lot of shortages. It was in the beginning of the dot-com boom. Uh, technology was changing. Gen X was coming into the workplace. So there was all this stuff going on and everybody pointed their fingers. You know, certainly, you know, I talk a lot now is if, if you can put a name to something or if you can point fingers at somebody, then the problem's solved. Like, okay, if we can fix that problem. Uh, but life's right. a lot more complicated. There's a, there's a lot of touch points. So what I recognize that it's not just that it wasn't just demographics and it wasn't just skill gaps and it wasn't just education. Uh, it was about women in the workplace and it was about an aging workforce and it was about changing skills. Uh, and, you know, then as time went on, you know, bringing more current, you know, a, a huge problem we have right now is with even child care. You know, we're, we're short. The number of childcare workers is down by is 10 percent. We have 10 percent fewer childcare workers. We actually pay. Uh, this was an alarming statistic. And then I'll get back to how we got here. But it's just, just an alarming statistic. The average pay for a childcare worker is 59 cents less an hour than it is for a dog walker. People are willing to pay more for their dog walkers than they are for childcare. But for childcare and I guess for dog walkers, is that you can't, there's a lot of people that can't get back to work or it's unaffordable. Right. They're going to work to pay for their childcare. Uh, and then you throw inflation, and then you throw gas prices. Um, but that, that was, so that's another segment that we started to identify back there. Then it was healthcare that we had an aging population, but we didn't have enough healthcare workers. So there was all these reasons that, and technology was just disrupting the workplace. Uh, so I called it the perfect labor storm. And uh, and this that was in 1999, and then it evolved. And and 
you know, I, I always said, I, you know, I, I, I forecast it coming only because I followed a lot of people who forecast it coming, uh, you know, if you go down that path. And so I became a kind of a curator of here's all the different trends. As we moved toward this, as we moved toward the current labor market, it, it wasn't a big surprise. I mean, 2020, I, I've been remote since the mid, since 2007. Uh, and I always said the pandemic, I, the world caught up to me and the world just caught up to everybody. The pandemic didn't cause these shortages. The world just caught up to it. But the, the core part of this is there was a couple of stats, which I think what you were referencing. In 1950, nine out of 10 working age men and, and primate working age men, and that's changed a little bit, but between 25 and 54, that was that was like the, the highest producing years. Uh, 20, uh, nine out of 10 men worked. It's currently six out of 10, a little over six out of 10, about 62%. And so about 30% of the male participation, males participating in the workforce has stopped. And why is that? Uh, well, one is a lot of the jobs required advanced degrees and men for whatever reason, maybe stubbornness, uh, weren't going for advanced degrees. They weren't not only weren't, they were they were going into trades, but they weren't getting two year degree, four years degree. And and eventually there's a lot of jobs that re still re are going to require at least a four year degree, if not be more education, like engineers, architects, dentists, <laughs> uh, physicians, attorneys, accountants. Um, so there's a lot of roles that are going to require advanced degrees. Um, but there was men have not done that women at the same time came into the workforce. So while in 1950, there was only 32% of the that of, uh, of women that worked, one out of three, um, by 1987, it increased to almost, or, or 1987, um, and it increased about uh, 57%. And then there was a small increase over the next couple of years. But by 2019, it was about 60%. Okay. So, it masked it. It camouflaged it. Somebody was looking at these numbers and, and nobody cared. Businesses, employers didn't care because there was still a flood of people coming into the workforce. Where we ended up at the pandemic is now we lost four, four million women from the workforce, uh, four per, almost 4%. So we're back down to 1987 levels and the male participation rate has continued to drop. Why? Because you got two million males in jail. They're incarcerated. You got another million that are addicted to opioids. Um, and then you have a whole slew of jobs that required advanced skills and they haven't been it. They're not going for further education. And women, uh, a lot of women are either working at home. They're, they're still the primary uh, caregiver. They're the, prim they're the primary, 50% uh, uh, of women are now the primary breadwinner, uh, head of household. Um, and uh, many times the, the male is staying home. Um, there's, uh, uh, and here's the last step because I can go on and on and on. Um, males under 30 went, uh, the number of unmarried males under 30 went from 30% to 70% in the last 10 years. So what's the big deal about that? If they're not married, they don't have any responsibility. They can quit a job. They don't have a home. They don't have a mortgage. They may have a car payment. They don't have. They may have kids, whether but whether they're supporting them or not. But the reality is, is they don't, and they don't have college debt because they're not going to college. And so the the rate 
of males who are living either at home or, or are married is huge, which means they're not forced to get jobs. It's also doubled from 15% to 30% for males between 30 and 39%. In the past is you graduated high school, maybe college, you got married, you had two kids, you bought a house, you, you had to work because you had a responsibility. So there's all these dynamics that are going on. The last kicker, I, I, I lied, there, there's one more kicker in this whole thing, which is the generational thing. And there is an impact to different generations. Between in the 1960s and the 1970s, there were 2.5 million new baby boomers, new, new workers that came into the workforce every single year. So fresh blood. If half of them didn't work, who cared? There was still a million, you know, 1.25 million new workers every year just flooding the, the workforce. And then we had in the 80s, you know, the economy was a little sluggish. Uh, we still had the baby boomers pouring into the workforce. And, and now you've got the Gen X. So new blood, but only half the size. Uh, but we, so it, it dropped to about 1.75 you know, or something uh, new workers, million new workers every year. And then the millennials showed up in the 90s and early 2000s. And you have another 2.5 million new workers every single year. So for four out of the five last decades, we had 2.5 million new workers coming into the workforce every year. That changed, didn't it? 2010 fell off the cliff. Fertility rates dropped. Immigration stopped, slowed, and then stopped. And baby boomers started to retire. So the, the, the trifecta um, happened. And currently, we have under 500,000 from 2.5 million, 500,000 new workers coming into the workforce every year. And there yeah. is no, you know, people say, well, what are we going to do about it? Well, immigration is probably off the table. We won't go into the politics of all that, but it's probably off the table for a while. Uh, the baby boomers, there's not, a, you know, people, baby boomers are probably continue working or come back into the workforce um, because I just read uh, that one, was it one out of four people, one out of four workers over 40, 60 years old have zero in their retirement. Oh, wow. Zero. One out of four have zero in the retirement over 60. So you, you may get some workers back for, for some jobs in there, but eventually, you know, the longer it goes, uh, they're going to get older, sicker, dire, and die. Uh, we lost two and we lost two hundred fifty thousand baby boomers in the working age baby boomers during the pandemic. We lost a million lives. Many of those were workers. So the list just goes on and on and on. Bottom line is, until twenty forty, we're we're really going to be under a million new workers every year coming in. The only way to boost which is effectively up, not even enough to replace those leaving every oh, year. Oh, exactly. Right? So, and and if we don't, you know, immigration's the easiest fix, but except for politics, so that's probably not going to happen. Um, to you know, changing education, skill gaps, closing those gaps, different incentives. Uh, what that's going to look like, um, it, it, you know, it's going to take a lot of work. Um, if you start having babies, it's going to take 18 years till we get a, we get a result, uh, unless we do it in test tubes and sometimes accelerate that 18 years. Um, so we, bottom line is, I mean, for work, for anybody that thinks that a recession um, is, is probably going to slow, it, you know, there's no doubt unemployment will probably creep up a little bit. 
Um, but it's not going to fix the labor shortages because the, no. the, the, the areas, the jobs uh, and the industries that are suffering now, um, they may be able to take a little bit of a breath, but nobody's predicting that it's going away, including Jerome Powell, our Fed chief, who said by the end of 2023, with all the increases and, and everything that they're doing, he only expects the unemployment rate to go up to 4.3%. Um, it, in, in 12 recessions that we've had, since 1945, there's not been any that the that the unemployment rate was that the lowest it was was 6.1 percent. He's predicting the high is going to be like mid fours. Well, and, and as I recall, anything under four and a half is considered fully employed. Yeah, or or you know when I grew up it was five percent. They they kind of ratcheted down, but uh, yeah, I mean, but but even when it was even if it if it was five percent, four and a half percent, I mean we we had much higher than that, you know, in 2021. and employers were complaining then. You know, the it's, it's an average. There there are many jobs that are at zero unemployment. There's there are just more jobs to be filled than there are people. Healthcare, education, um, there. There are bodies that they can put in place to fill those jobs, but the reality is, is the jobs, there's just not enough people that are qualified or that want to live in the areas where those jobs are or that they're not mobile, uh, which goes into the whole story about, you know, companies and employers that are trying to switch back to, to all in person. Um, good luck with that. So if you're, if you're a CEO, if you're a CEO, the, the net net here is, the shortage is real. It's going to be there. If you're going to lay off people, somebody else is going to hire them quickly and you, you might solve a short term capital problem, but the shortage will be there when you go back to rehire. Right. It's going to still be there. Take, take, take it from a dentist. Treat your employees well and treat your customers well <laughs> because, because they're not going to be there at the at, at the other end of this tunnel. So. You talk a lot about employee experience and candidate experience. And one of the things that always uh, gets me is you have this uh, FCCD up thing. <laughs> your candidate experience, your employee experience is FCCD up. Let's talk a little bit about that. What are we doing that's messing up, uh, you know, the experience of either getting hired or being an employee? What, what are companies doing that's so wrong out there? Well, the MIR acronym, which stands for FCDD, we won't try to pronounce it, um, it is frustrating confusing, disappointing, and distracting. So what are employers doing wrong? The same thing they do wrong with customers. They frustrate them, they confuse them, they disappoint them, or, and they distract them. And going back to something, well, I, I spoke for many, you know, my previous book was Recruiting in the Age of Globalization, talked about the candidate experience, um, is how many things can, how many ways can companies screw, you know, F it up, FCDD up. Uh, when it comes to the application. And, you know, and, and it sounds simple, but one is the application is too long um, or that someone starts to fill out the application, but it doesn't save the information or they fill out the application and then they request that they upload a resume uh, and or they have to create a login. You know, let's go back even to the beginning. Uh, they, they have to create a login to, to even start the application. So there's all those stages that it, it you know, it, again, just F's it up. Uh, employee experience, um, you know, it, it could be as simple as somebody says, how many P PTO days do I have? Uh, you know, on, on onboard, the onboarding experience, what's, what's that look like? Uh, if it's frustrating, confusing, disappointing, or distracting, and the biggest ones are the, the frustrating and the 
confusing, you know, hiring process, of course, it's disappointing. You know, people apply and only one gets accepted. <laughs> um, so right. it's, it's, it's really not, uh, I, I love uh, Kevin, Gro that talent board and, and, you know, Kevin Grossman is a good friend of ours and I'm sure many listeners may be familiar with, with Kevin and the talent board. Um, but, it, you know, we, it's not a hiring process. It's a deselection process <laughs> that we go through because there's, yeah, there's I think, what is it, 97, was it like 97 percent of job applications end in a rejection of some kind? Yeah. I mean, so there's there's built in disappointment. What you can't do is pile on. You can't get, well, it's expected that, you know, that you can't we can't possibly notify everyone. Yes, you can. I mean, some of that can be notified. So, you know, what's the, what's the disappointing part? So people are, are inherently disappointed when they're applying for the job. And worse is you don't even respond to their application or they get a generic, um, you know, lame, uh, thank you for your application. Uh, you know, we're so busy. We, we can't notify everybody type thing. Uh, great initial impression, great response. Uh, and it just it just follows that way all the way through and to, you know, to give at least HR and some some room to breathe. You know, part of the problem is, is 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 if that if you have high turnover and the managers aren't doing a good job and you don't have the right compensation and benefits and onboarding in place, then it just becomes a, a turnstile. And they're just so busy trying to fill positions, they don't have time to take care of the people on the back end. Uh, but the same problem happens with, uh, you know, we I, I've not switched, but we've progressed into talking about the employee experience. And all you hear is about these, you know, one story after another about how frustrating, confusing, disappointing and distracting, you know, how many distractions go on at work. And that's one of the reasons that people want to work remote, because there's fewer distractions at home. They can be more productive than there is at work. <laughs> that's true. That is absolutely true. You know, it's interesting when you, you talk about the, the all of the frustration in the hiring process. You know, we, we started our company really around candidate experience. It's in our name. And um, one of the things that really has always fascinated me is when we, we, we chat with candidates right when they apply for a job. So think you apply, we say hi via SMS and we're talking to the candidate. And if they're disqualified from a job, we tell them right away. And when we started doing that, I thought that that would be a, a, a candidate satisfaction problem. And it turned out just telling people, you know, uh, you applied for a CDL job, you don't have a current CDL. Once you get that, you can come back and apply again, but we can't hire you now. You just tell somebody that, they go, thank you. And then you ask them, rate your experience. And on a scale one to five, they give you a five every time. Yeah, they're not disappointed. Yeah. Again, yeah, they're not disappointed about not getting the job. They're just disappointed nobody's talking to them. <laughs> It's it still goes back to communication and communication isn't always words. I mean, it, it doesn't have to be face to face. Uh, sometimes it's just the, the the time of the response. It's the tone of the response, uh, how often you respond. Uh, the, the fact is that you cared. I mean, people still want to be know that they, they're valued, that they're appreciated as a human being, uh, that and. and you can personalize these messages. You know, it's remarkable. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I have automated emails go out, um, you know, people re reply and, you know, just so you can respond to acknowledge that something is received and you can make them really personal and people respond back and, and say, you know, boy, this is the first, you know, I, I've applied or I've, I, I've contacted for whatever service we're offering, uh, you know, seven companies and you're the first one to respond or you were the first that responded in a per we really thank you because it was a personal message. And I didn't I didn't 
clone a template off the internet. I wrote, how would I write this message if I was responding to him personally? And then I put that into an email template. It makes all the difference. I mean, if, crazy. If you talk, it, yeah, talk to me. I, I make, I'm a person. Talk to me like I'm a person. Um, don't throw a corporate speak at me. Just, just if you're going to say hi, say hi. Um, okay. It's crazy. But we go through a lot of this when we work with employers on, on how to actually talk to their candidates. Um, they, they tend to like to be very, you know, um, very corporate. They're using, you know, try to use big words. And, and the reality is, in our case, we're doing mostly text messaging. It's 160 characters. One syllable words are great because people can understand them. And talk like you're a person. And it's amazing what happens when, when recruiters switch from talking like, like a corporate drone to actually just um, saying, hi, Ira, I'd love to help you <laughs> instead right. of um, instead of trying to say we have received your application and we'll be looking at it sometime in the near future, right? Please do not email us. Yeah, <laughs> you know. And, and part of the problem, and I, I think a lot of, especially startups and a lot of the more nimble companies got away from it. But you know, it's like, hey, we need to have our thank you, our messages approved by our attorney. Um, <laughs> you know, no, you don't. I mean, you know, you're, you're not you're acknowledging that they submitted an application and just be polite, uh, be transparent. I mean, I know that's an overused word, but be transparent if it's going to, you know, if it's going to take you a month to process it, which is way too long. Um, but if it's going to take you a month, tell them it's going to take a month. I mean, you can't lie to them. Hey, we'll be back to you in 48 hours um, and then blow them off. Uh, no, it, it sets a signal. I mean, if you make a promise and can't keep it, that is a, a very personal signal to me that, that you are not to be trusted. Yeah. And, can't rely on you. and you, can, you can blame it on them. I mean, you can blame it on the Internet. You can blame it on Amazon. But if, if, if I can order a package and be, and be notified that it was when it was picked up, where it is, how many stops away it is. But I but I I apply, I take the time to apply for a job. And three months later, I still don't know where I am in the process. But I can order a 5,000, I can order a car. You know, I can go to Carvana and I can place an order for a car and know every step of the way where it is. But I apply for a job that I want to work for your company and have no clue where I stand. Or sometimes that you even received it. Bizarre. I think that's the right word for it. Bizarre. It, it really is. But it's also rampant. And it's something that really isn't that hard to fix. The technologies out there, there are products, that, there are off the shelf products like that one that you can get that do that. There's all kinds of ways to solve these, these problems. They're not unsolvable at all. Um, the hard part with it is just to realize, you know, and I think maybe this is a good question for you. If, if you're the CEO of a company and you think your hiring process is broken, how do you as a CEO go diagnose that? I think I think I see this a lot where senior management can't figure out their hiring process is just dystopian. Yeah. So, you know, part of it is, 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 is companies, many companies have invested in the right places. So I, I'm not going to, it's not, hey, we start need to start over or what's the best software that I should look at? What's the best technology? Whatever you have, get the most out of it. So let's just go back to FCDD, um, my, and I'll give you one more acronym. My acronym that, that I developed in the recruitment marketing phase 
uh, what is reach? So it's R-E-A-C-H. So one is, how, do you, how are you reaching people? And, and again, what's the frustration part? Hey, I don't know. I don't even know you had a job or I, I heard you had, you had an opening, but I went to your website. I couldn't find it. I mean, those are all, you know, all things of what frustrates, confuses, dis, distracts or disappoints people when they, they were told to just go up to the website and apply for a job. And, the, and at the bottom of the, of the screen, you scroll down, you see all this great stuff about marketing the company and about the customers, but you can't find where their jobs are listed. You know, so you might find it in the footer under jobs or careers. Uh, so make it more obvious. Uh, but then you go to engage because it's beyond just applying. It's about engagement. What What's that conversation look like? Hey, I, I have a question about the job. What would it be like if I worked at your company? What's the first day of work? What are the opportunities that are available? So how do I engage them? And that could be done through text, audio, video, uh, or, you know. Oh, so, so many great ways to communicate that, right? Yeah. I mean, you got to tell the story. It's no longer a, a, a copy and paste the job description. So one is how, how do we reach them and not disappoint, not not frustrate, confuse, disappoint and distract? How do we engage them? The same FCDD. How do, what's the application, which is my pet peeve? You know, what are all the ways that fresh you know, night? What companies don't realize is that up to nine, between 50 and 90%, and most of them are, are leaning toward the high side of that, as many as 90% of all applicants that start an application don't finish it. And companies still, to this day, don't track that. They don't know. Uh, and Indeed doesn't really track it because all you know is how many people apply. Um, you don't know how many people start the application because you don't have that data, and, and, and most companies aren't going to tell it. So so the whole problem is is that companies, it's, it's like if if people are starting it and not completing it, there's a problem. Stop. Mm -hmm. If you knew that people were said, and I'll use the Amazon example, how successful do you think Amazon would be if every time I went to purchase the product, I had to fill out this massive form uh, or there was all, I was confused or it dropped off or I walked away for a minute and it didn't store it. I mean, there was, there's a million things. They wouldn't be where they are. Uh, and we need to take, you know, companies need to take lessons for that is how do you make, how do you remove the SCDD from, uh, from the application? The C is conversation. I know that's that and communication. That's, that's your thing. And so when we're talking about that is, you know, from communication before the application, although the C is after the application and the acronym, it starts before it's part of that engagement, but immediately if somebody abandons your application, you should be communicating with them. Let them know, hey, you started. Uh, if as soon as they finish the application, uh, there should be some type of correspondence. There should be some correspondence uh, almost weekly. It's like, hey, it, the process take, is going to take us four weeks, but we're going to give you an update every week. And even if the update is to say, hey, just want to let you know we had a busy week. Hopefully you're doing fine. Here's a tip. You know, while you're waiting to hear from us, here's a tip, here's a video, here's something you can do, or here's something special that happened in our company today. You communicate with them. People spend an enormous amount of money trying to collect names for newsletters, and people apply, and they just abandon them. They don't do anything with them. Communicate. I've always been blown away by that. I, that's always just been a, it's one of the reasons we started doing what we're doing here at Pivot. At Pivot, we saw this, we were originally a different company, and, and it was much more of a mobile job board. Um, and we kept seeing the problem was we would send sometimes thousands of candidates to our customers and only a tiny fraction of those people we would send to the employer would ever hear from the employer. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. We would say, I mean, I remember looking at one company and it, uh, I, we sent 1,722 applicants to that company. And we went back to every one of those applicants within a day of when they applied and that, have you heard anything from them? And 100% said nothing. Right. And, and it was, you know, you want to go back to, you know, I'm, I'm not a recruiter by my background. I actually came out of the advertising and marketing space. So I was, I was looked at that. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is crazy to generate a thousand leads, thousand seven hundred seven one thousand seven hundred twenty two leads, and to have it just uh, all of them not get any attention at all. And then you know, flash forward to now, we we've done a lot of research into the customers and and companies that are using our product to communicate, and we're finding out that um, you can talk to seventy percent of the people that apply for a job. They'll talk with you within to, with you within four minutes of when they apply. You could actually advance the whole hiring process within five minutes of that application. But if you wait one day, you can only talk to about thirty five percent of the people that applied. So you lose half of your effective applicants just by ignoring them. Right. Well, even go and this is this crosses over between the application and the the communication is that even qualifying people, I mean, qualifying people is, you know, some jobs, do do they really need a college degree? Do they need four years of, you know, two, three, oh. four, five years of experience? Uh, you know, when are they able to start a work? Do they have, uh, are they licensed in your particular state? If the answer no, if those are truly requirements, that they truly, they need to be licensed in the state, they need a degree, they need the next number of years of experience. Those are the only questions you have to ask. You don't even need a name for that. You don't need to know their name. You don't need to know where they live, where they went to school, where they went to high school, you know, three references, uh, what they're what they're what they made in the past. You don't need any of that information. What you need to qualify somebody is do they have the core basic qualifications, which most companies don't know. So you can ask four or five questions. And if they don't answer no to any of those questions, then you go, hey, congratulations. We'd love to go to the next step. Can we set up a call? And instantly you can have a video call with somebody or you can have a, a, a text messaging go back and invite them to complete the rest of the application or do a quick interview. Hey, glad you stopped by. Just want to learn a little bit more. See if it's worthwhile for you to, to even submit the rest of the application and schedule them. You can schedule them for an interview. Um, when, when, I, when I was doing a lot of speaking on the recruit, on, on that part of the, the business, the part, part of the application process, uh, you know, I'd say people couldn't identify what the four or five core questions were, which is a problem because, you know, when it's like, well, the hiring managers sort of say, you know, if, if they have 10 years of experience, but they don't have a degree, uh, that's okay. Well, yeah, that is okay. That's the way they should look at it if they're if they're qualified for the job that way. But then in the job ad, you can't put that you need 10 years of experience um, because it's not like it's not all or none. It's a combination of those things. But what is it that's the minimum that they need to get past that gate? And if they don't have it, it means you can't it doesn't mean you can ignore them. It means have a conversation. Maybe they're, they'd be comfortable with another job. Maybe they're on the verge of getting that that degree. Um, but again, it's, it's having some type of open conversation conversation. And I love the fact that you said, you know, you came from marketing. I mean, you know, I came from dentistry, but I'm, I always say I'm more of a content marketer, a marketing company that just happens to be in different spaces. Uh, but it's so true. I mean, it, it's, it really is about no one would put up with this in any other department. The inefficiencies and the first <laughs> and the FCDDs in any other department. Um, but in, in, in HR, it's sort of like, eh, just the nature of the beast. Not anymore. Time is the. It doesn't have to be. It doesn't. 
it it really doesn't have to be that way. That's that's the thing that blows my mind. You know, we we're, we're okay with that, and that's why I love the FCCD acronym. I love that because it really does a good job of describing what a lot of companies are are doing. Uh, you know, when you look at, at recruitment, and even when you go past recruitment, okay, you hired somebody. It's still frustrating. Yeah. It's so long, long way. So. Let me let me tie this up because your you initial question: What's going a CEO do? And the CEO can go sure. back and use that acronym, the the R E A C H. Oh, by the way, the H is onboarding. So H, uh, when we look at the H, it, it, the onboarding isn't just a matter of filling out the, your twenty six chapters or volumes of of documents. Um, Onboarding is what's what's their experience like the first week, the first day, the first week, the first month, the first couple months. You know, what's that look like? How do you get them ingrained in, in your culture? Um, how do you fix all that is you, you go back and you look at each step. What's frustrating, confusing, disappointing and distracting with our reach when we're trying to reach people to create that branding to get the message out there? What's frustrating, confusing, disappointing, distracting when it comes to engagement? What's the FCDD when it comes to the application? What's the FCD when it comes to our communication? What's the FCD when it comes to hiring uh, or onboarding? Uh, and, and then when you go into the employee experience, what's the FCDD, you know, with, with our compensation and benefits and payroll and, and you know, requesting days off and whatever it is, um, it is just follow the FCDD model and remove you know what? it. It really is kind of just asking one of the toughest questions there is in business. And, and I, I say this as a guy, you know, I started six businesses. This is one of them. One of the hardest questions in the world is to ask what's wrong with us? <laughs> what are we doing wrong? And, and, and being OK with having a discussion about it is so hard to do. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I mean, one of the things and, and I, I, I appreciate you brought that up because it is hard. And we do that in our podcast, uh, Geek Skeezes and Googleization. Uh, and, you know, it's a question that we ask at the end and everybody appreciates it, uh, is what did, what didn't we ask that we should have? And people are taken back because a lot of times, you know, we had a great conversation and we, they gave us a list of questions, but somewhere along the line, it's, boy, I wish he would have asked me that. So we, we started to ask that and I, I saw, I won't give his name away, but I saw a, a well-known, um, keynote speaker. Um, well, author, thought leader in the subject. Uh, and someone from the audience asked that question. And shockingly, he put him down. It's like if there was anything that I wouldn't have asked, if, I want, if there was anything I wanted you to know, I would have told you. And he turned the tone. I mean, the, the whole room went flat. And the Q&A that they were having went away. Oh, it, just, it was like, why would you just die? Yeah, it's yeah. So going, you know, going back to what you said, the hardest question that you can possibly ask is what did I miss? You know, and somebody asked that question and that's the, the response you get from employers every now and then, you know, or, or HR or managers. Um, that's a stupid question. Um, All right. Well, you've set me up nicely here to, for the last question. So, Ira, what did we not ask you that we should have? What, what, what did we miss? <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I, I was watching myself swallow my foot when I put myself, <laughs> put that question. Um, well, there's so much. Obviously, I, I've loved being here and having a great topic. I guess the one question is, is what's my latest book, which is, you know, create a, <laughs> create a great workforce, uh, a great culture in a remote world. Uh, and yeah, rumor uh, has it you wrote the best chapter in that book. I, I did. Yeah, I, I did. And anybody wants to get a, a sneak peek of it. 
Uh, they actually, I, I wrote um, an article that was just published up on uh, on Forbes. Uh, dot com, which was about the great employee, the executive employee disconnect, which is what we were talking about, you know, as well. Well, and get us the get us the link to that, and I'll make sure it gets into the uh, episode notes and everything, so our, our everybody who watches our podcast can can find the article. Um, so I have two quite quick questions for you that we always ask every guest. Uh, so, what what business book is your all time favorite? Oh, that's always you know I, I read so many books. I figured this would be really tough for you because there's got you've got to have like fifty of them or something. Yeah, you know, I guess the one there is. Um, I, I guess the one that sticks out. I can't say it was the best book. Well, it was one of the most influential books I read. Was Paradigm by Joe Barker, um, and you know, it was the first time I was like trying to explain you know what a paradigm was. You know, um, and uh, but I. I you know, I guess one of the most influential leadership books I wrote was or, or read uh, was from Warren Bennis, you know, and he talked about, um, you know, uh, leaders aren't leaders aren't meant to lead. And it was it was about the difference between managers and leaders. Uh, you know, lead, managers get people to do what you want them to do. Leaders get people to want to do what you want them to do. And uh, that, you know, that probably transformed my thinking. Of, of how I approached management and leadership. Okay, last question for you. Um, so, favorite movie? Oh, um, you know, every I mean, this is this is dumb. I mean, every, every time I I I watch Rocky, you know, or hear the theme song, it's like. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I I'm a movie guy too. I mean, we we I, I read a lot of books and I go I, I read a lot of chapters. I don't actually read a lot of the books from the beginning to the end, but I I I'm a movie guy. So, but, uh, you know, every time it's on, it's like, you know how it's going to end, but it somehow instills, you know, it, it gets you going. Oh, it's a great movie. Ira, thanks so much for being with us on Pivot to First today. I really, uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Um, again, uh, you know, Ira's book uh, is, is on its way out, I think, somewhere close to being available. Oh, it is available. Is it? Yeah, it is available. Okay. It's up on Amazon now. Or if you go to my website, agrawolf.com, uh, you can order it there and I'll send you a signed copy of it. You get it. You do get it faster from Amazon. But, but if, you, if you want a signed copy, I'll be happy to, to do that through the website. All right, Ira. Thanks so much for being with us. Have a great afternoon. Yeah. Thanks very much, Mike.